I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, the 2004 film directed by Michelle Gondry, screenplay by Charlie Kaufman. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. I am building a birdhouse. (laughs) (laughs) And Alex Cayeros. Hi. Before we dive into this amazing movie, quick update on the Patreon. We have concluded the vote for this month, and our patron-exclusive episode is going to be on District 9. Lady Bird almost (laughs) did it. It was very close, but we will get to Lady Bird. Worry not. Yeah, we have to go revisit District 9 this month, so that's going to be fun. Get ready to hear way too much of my Vicus impersonation. (laughs) No such thing. Uh, And also, for you listeners listening on Spotify... We have a question for you that fits into the theme of of this film, the kind of film I think it is, which is, what is your favorite bittersweet movie? A movie that, you know, has the right balance of happiness and sadness, and it just hits the, hits the heart <laughs> the feelings, dead on. Right there, yes. yeah. Yeah, so let us know. It's been really fun to see all of your answers to the previous questions. And now we're going to try to talk about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I don't know why you guys want to do this to ourselves, but here we are. <laughs> I feel like this is a movie that I think is special to all of us. And I think probably if you are of our general generation, it's a movie that you couldn't help being really struck by and moved by. And it's just so good. It's one of those yeah. movies that's like intimidatingly good. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes. <laughs> and that's, you know, when I started lessons from the screenplay this was one of the movies that was like you have to talk about this movie and the screenplay for it because it's so good but it's it's too good mm-hmm. it's kind of like like someone on the first video commented you should talk about chinatown it's like okay well calm down i'm not ready <laughs> to like do that and i feel like this is at at that level for me um so it's really really good but there that means there's a lot of things to talk about and we're going to talk about as many of them as possible i want to hear from you guys though since this is a movie that i think is special to all of us what was your experience like watching eternal sunshine of the spotless mind for the first time alex so i saw it i think i was it was 2004 right Mm -hmm. so i was like it was like a I think it was between my junior and senior years of high school. And I had not yet been in any sort of romantic relationship. You know, mm. I had maybe like, you know, hooked up or something. But like, I never actually had a relationship relationship. And going and seeing this in a theater was this really crazy experience where by the end of the film, I felt like I had gone through the emotions of a relationship without having had one mm-hmm. yet. Mm-hmm. And, and it was this incredible sense of how what like this movie just (laughs) did that to me like how did a movie give me an experience i haven't even had yet but like i felt it a hundred percent and then on top of that it was also kind of a time travel movie and a dream movie and Mm -hmm. all these things that i already just like want from every movie so it was (laughs) it was like this layered amazingness that my like my mind couldn't even process it right away i had to see it multiple times to really wrap my head around it But I just knew from that first viewing that there was something incredibly special here because, you know, so few movies are able to like envelop me so completely and transmit an emotional experience so completely. Mm -hmm. And this movie did it. So, yeah, I've just been in awe of it from day one since that first showing in that first theater and uh, ever since. Yeah, 
And it, it like it still does that. Like going into the rewatch of this, I was like, do I really want to watch this? Like I've seen this so many mm-hmm. times. Like I had like some resistance and I was even like, you know what? I'm going to try to find things I don't like about this movie. And by the end, I was <laughs> still <laughs> crying. It's just, you can't, you can't fight it. Okay. So Brian, you're like a couple years older than the rest of us. I'm curious, what was your experience like and, and the context there? Well, this is weird because I have a very good memory for where and when I saw a movie and with whom. Way back, I remember my friend one night came over to my house and said, have you seen Being John Malkovich? And I said, no. And he said, let's go. And he took me to the theater and we just saw it that night and I was blown away. And since then, I started following Charlie Kaufman. I know exactly where I was when I saw Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, Adaptation, Synecdoche, New York. I can't remember seeing Eternal Sunshine for the Someone first. Someone erased your memory. Yeah, <laughs> but the but the, the, there's something about it almost that makes that special to me because it's like I don't remember this movie not existing. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? <laughs> like right. even yeah. though it's more recent than most of the movies I just mentioned, I feel like it's been with me since I was in high school or something. Even though that's not the case at all. So yeah, it's like I don't remember. I probably just went by myself and then, you know, I probably watched it as soon as I can afterwards when it came to video and stuff, but I just don't have a strong memory of going from not knowing this movie to knowing this movie. It just feels like it's a movie that's always been with me in kind of a weird magical way. Yeah, my experience is actually extremely similar mm. to that, Bri, because I don't remember when I saw this movie first. I'm going to say I didn't see it in theaters cuz that doesn't seem like something I would have done in high school. Really? Hmm. No, this movie probably wouldn't have been on my radar in oh. high school for whatever reason. I don't know. I feel like I was going to see like big movies. And and this movie was critically acclaimed, but it wasn't like, you know, a big blockbuster kind of like action movie, which is what I I tended to go to the theater for um at the time and but in college I remember watching it a lot. Like either a boyfriend at the time or roommates or somebody had it right because that's the thing about this film is that it it had this it took on this whole other life when it came out on dvd like it was like i said the critics loved this movie um kate winslet was nominated for an oscar for it and um i think a couple other awards as well like you know it was very well respected but it wasn't again it's not sort of like it's more of a film, you might say, rather than a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. But it, it really, when it came out on DVD, it was like the one that everybody had in college. Like, I didn't know anybody at film school that didn't have Eternal Sunshine right. on their shelf and that didn't try to make an Eternal Sunshine knockoff in film school. <laughs> there were so many of those, uh-huh. including one in my year that was like everybody loved. And it was like very similar where. A guy was thinking about a relationship, but instead of having memories, he like had old videotapes and he, but he would like go into the videotapes and like talk to his past self and his mm. girlfriend and whatever. Mine was the best. Everyone was trying to make this movie. <laughs> Michael made one as well. <laughs> yeah. Everyone in film school wanted to be, you know, Michelle Gondry and like make another version of Eternal Sunshine. So I'm with you, Brian, where it's like this movie has always existed. It's always been a part of like my cinematic sort of like landscape. I was going to say my cinematic heartscape, if I can put it <laughs> that like way. That. Yeah. Or emotionscape, whatever you want to call that. Um, Let's where put that it just, on a t shirt. It, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just fits in there where at the time, I, you know, I don't know if I'd ever been in love when I had seen it, when I saw it the first time. But you somehow equate, I think at least those of us that were younger, equate like our first relationship 
feelings <laughs> with this movie somehow yes. where it's like this was the first time i was in love it sucked it went so badly <laughs> but it was so good it was so real <laughs> anyway yeah I, th- I think that is just important context for people that are listening that are perhaps younger and don't understand like i'm, I'm i am curious of like for people mm-hmm. of a newer generation if this film has that same power and if it is as important and if it was just amplified for us, it's still great, definitely. But if it was amplified by the time period that it came out in, and I will always remember the day that I saw it, because very briefly, and this is one of my favorite stories to tell, and also one of the most embarrassing stories that I, I have. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> is that so senior year of high school, at the beginning of the year, I had a huge crush on this girl. I asked her out. She said no, but then we started hanging out more, and then we ended up dating, and it was the happiest that I'd ever been. But I was also in high school, so it was awkward, and so things weren't going super well by the time this movie came out. <gasps> and so this Friday afternoon, when I knew this movie was coming out and I was going to go see it later. She asked me to go have Jamba Juice with her, which was like a thing we did. And so we went to the Jamba Juice and it's an outdoor Jamba Juice. So it's very noisy. Like there's cars driving by constantly. Oh my God. And so we're having this conversation where everything seems fine. And then there's this one sentence that she says that I can't quite hear because like a truck drove by. It felt like I was in like a Christopher Nolan movie, right? Where you can't hear the dialogue (laughs) at the key moments. I heard something that was like, we're going to work on it. Everything's going to be fine. And I was like, yeah, everything is going to be fine. And I have renewed hope for our relationship. And then I went and saw Eternal Sunshine and I like left the theater with all this love and emotion and like everything's great. And I had this window pen. It was this kind of pen that you could get, you could write on windows with. It was like a paint pen and I would write on people's like car windows, like draw widescreen aspect ratios and stuff because I'm, I'm a nerd. <laughs> uh, and so I went to her house, my, oh my God. girlfriend's house. <laughs> so I thought at the time and wrote on you her thought. window, I still heart name on her window 24 hours pass Michael. and <laughs> uh, i'm at a play at the drama play our high school play and one of my good friends runs up and says are you okay and i'm like yeah why everything's great and she's like well i heard you guys broke up and i said what uh and so it turns out that that one little line that i didn't actually hear was her It's always important breaking just up ask him me. to say it yeah. again. Yeah. Just <laughs> every time. This is how you learn that lesson. Oh. But I feel like that whole story feels kind of eternal sunshiny yes, or a thing that could have happened to Joel. Oh no. Anyway, so or any of the characters. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, so relatable. Yeah, that reminds me of so many stories that I have that we will not get into. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was just I think especially when you're young and and there's and and this movie falls into obviously that time of life for us. But when experiences are new, you're still, you know, as a young adult, you're still sort of forming your identity in terms of relationships and in terms of your sense of self and all of this stuff. Things have a vividness to them, like a brightness and a, a sense of narrative to them where you are actively looking for the image or the narrative element, even to things that are happening to you right 
at that moment. And so like when I think about my early relationships and like the first couple of people I dated, it's like I can tell you details, like down to details, the way that you're talking about, Michael, where you save all of the little notes and you like all the movie stubs and, (laughs) you know, like the mixtape from the time is every single song is so meaningful. And I think that's just a phase of life where you are assimilating and and this movie does a brilliant job of literally capturing this you are putting together a relationship out of objects and images to form a narrative in your in your mind of that relationship mm-hmm. and so things take on this extra level of significance that once you know we're in our 30s now all of us once we get to this point it's like i can remember the early things about you know my longest term relationship. I can think about the earliest parts of that. But once it goes on for a certain amount of time, the details kind of lose their vividness and and you're just in a different phase in life right? where you've kind of like taught yourself not to obsess over the narrative or the details in quite the same way. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think like you're saying, this film captures that, that mm-hmm. moment and that that conflict and the tension of how hard it is to love. Like, I think this movie just better than anything else captures that. We'll get to the end and the, and the crisis and how it all resolves. That's what makes this, this film beautiful is that it's, it is this bittersweet thing where it is a love letter to love, but it's also not shying away from how Mm -hmm. awful that can be and how complicated people are and how you can kind of only really hate things that you love and it's hard to navigate all of that messiness and just and the character design and the structure just all of it it's it's so it's all there and communicated Mm -hmm. in so many really impressive ways yes yeah one thing that struck me uh watching it this time is that you know joel and clem's quote-unquote first meeting uh the first one we see is it's it's messy you know, it's not it's not lovely and adorable and, oh, I want these people to be together and be happy and everything. I mean, I always knew that, obviously, like that's pretty clear when you watch the movie, but I hadn't necessarily thought before how that is how that sort of pre echoes the end of the movie, which is, hey, things aren't perfect. Things aren't the rom-com sort of you know, happy mm-hmm. ending type things. This is just the way it is. But does the good outweigh the bad? let's see how this goes kind of thing. And and you sort of get that from that first meeting where I'm like, I don't know if I'm rooting for this couple yet, but okay, let's keep watching. And then eventually you are, you know? Mm -hmm. So speaking of that first meeting, what makes this movie one of my favorites of all time is its rewatchability and how intricately it's designed and put together. It's, Mm -hmm. it's mind boggling. It's Mm -hmm. mind blowing. It's, I can't believe it exists because every, (laughs) Every scene in this movie can exist on its own without the context that is also there later and and, and it functions as a good scene without the context sure. that you get later and then becomes even more interesting on a rewatch or you know when we go back to that we go back to the same morning later in the movie yeah it has a whole different meaning i love the way this film starts off with this basically 15 minute prologue where you essentially mm-hmm. are dropped into just this day in the life of Joel and this kind of awkward meet cute with Clementine. No indication of anything supernatural or crazy or complicated about this world so far. Just this kind of simple, charming, weird, awkward meet cute that ends kind of happily with them going out on the ice and happy Valentine's Day. And it's like, oh, this is a cute beginning of a relationship. 
and then Elijah Wood walks up and says yeah. something that doesn't make <laughs> any like, sense. He's like, I'm in this movie, Mofa. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that was like just after Lord of the Rings, too. I'm like, oh my God, Frodo. <laughs> yeah. And then it goes to the opening titles. And, mm-hmm. and then we're in this like Kaufman, more Bing John Malkovich world for a little mm-hmm. while where you are thrown in the deep end of what's happening. Why is Joel being followed by this fan? What's this pill he's taking? You know, the, the, you go into more of a traditional Kaufman, like screwing with your brain stuff. Right. But, but I think it's so important that the movie first gives you that 15 minute prologue of just here's these two central characters. They're really particular and special and unique. And you can see why they like each other, even though they're very strange. <laughs> you need that foundation before you go into the, the really crazy Kaufman stuff. And it's just such a brilliant opening. Well, it's helping you like ground yourself a little bit in the characters and in the world and in the style that the way the movie is made. So it's really cutty. You know, that opening conversation is super cutty where they're really not we're getting snippets of dialogue. They're not really, you know, having a long conversation where ideas are flowing into each other. They're just kind of sitting there and the way that it's, you know, sort of choppy put together. Same thing with the scenes on the beach. Same thing with the scenes, you know, they go to the diner and whatever. They're kind of like seeing each other from a distance at first. And visually, it's it's giving you a preview of, hey, don't expect long takes. Don't expect like eloquent speaking. You're mm-hmm. going to talk over each other. They're going to misunderstand each other. There's going to be unexpected switches, right? That's a great introduction to the character of Clementine where she's really hard to anticipate what she's going to do or say next. And it's helping you get oriented to all of that before it plunges you into the very difficult circular plot, like memory erasure stuff in a really smart way that. Because otherwise, I don't know how you would follow anything in this movie. Mm. If you don't have that prologue, then you just are like, who, what? Everything's like messy. And there's it doesn't give you necessarily all the crazy techniques that you're going to get with like the weird lighting and the light bleed and like all the different practical effects that end up, you know, sort of assaulting your senses later in the memory sequences. But it is easing you in to what the movie is going to be in a really effective way. I'm really quickly to add to that. I think there maybe have been other Kaufman films or other movies that do just drop you in the deep end without that foundation. Yeah. And they're often not as accessible or or as powerful because you don't, you don't have a firm footing and you don't have a connection with the characters yet. So you're just kind of confused and don't care about anybody yet, you know, to, to to draw you through that confusion. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. For how much we talk about writing on Beyond the Screenplay, we don't often get the opportunity to talk about how to come up with ideas in the first place. Getting an idea and turning it into something can be one of the most challenging aspects of the creative process. Fortunately, Skillshare has hundreds of classes to help you get started. Skillshare is an online learning community for creatives where millions come together to take the next step in their creative journey. For example, one of the classes available is Creative Personal Writing, Write the Real You by Ashley C. Ford. Ashley demonstrates how to take personal experiences and memories and turn them into stories you can share with the world. So explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Beyond the Screenplay, where our listeners get a free trial of premium membership. That's Skillshare.com slash Beyond the Screenplay. Thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring this episode.
Yeah, I think there's there's like several things and and what you just said that I want to like highlight and then I think we should kind of return to as we're talking about this. I remember also being in the theater when the credits started for the first time and one of my friends leaned over and was like, "Why did the credits to the movie just start? We're like 15 minutes in." And I was like, "Because this is the beginning, like like filmmaker brain was uh-huh. like, oh, I'm clever. I know what's happening. Um, I'm 17 uh-huh. and I'm smart. Um, but yeah, so I think there's this opening sequence. I think what's also impressive about it is that you're, you are in the deep end already, but you don't know it. Yes. And that's kind <laughs> of like the genius of it is like, yes. yep. you, yeah, you don't know that you're already confused because you're not going to know for sure why you're confused until later. But like, this is going to all be very confusing, but right now it's fine. And I think the way that kind of puts you off balance is really genius and awesome. And and I think that the style thing is really interesting too. And this is kind of a meta thing that uh, is interesting about the construction of Eternal Sunshine, where I have kind of always held this movie up as an example of what lightning in a bottle is like a, a movie process like uh-huh. y- you could never make this movie mm-hmm. twice right and nope. there's a lot of good that went into this movie but it is a million times more than the sum of its parts and that's part yes. of what makes it amazing and so like you're like you're talking about trisha with the kind of cutty editing style like that's definitely i think part of the intention in the filmmaking but also as we know now you know if you go and read the screenplay which everyone should which do, everyone by the way. Should do. It's very instructive. It's very different. It's very different. It was and the first messy. screenplay. Yep. It's yes. a disaster. It's the first screenplay I tried to read, I think, as a as a oh, young wow. person. Not a good place to and start. And I was like, oh, I love this movie. I'm going to read this screenplay. What is this? This isn't the movie that I watched. <laughs> no. But I think that's also why it's so important to read it, is that it's instructive and like how much of the genius is there on the page and then how much of the genius was added later and then how much of the genius was removing stuff that was on the page and yep. moving things around. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just just get the screenplay and read along during that first conversation, this opening sequence with them, and you'll see... It's like 20 pages long, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, it's very long. And so much of it is is removed and in different orders. And so I think that also contributes to the style in this kind of weird mm-hmm. way where like some of it's intentional, but some of the aggressive cutting and jumping in time and compression is just, that's what they had to do to get from this line on the page to the next line of the page. Mm-hmm. And like, they need to find a way for Clem to move from this forward seat to this other seat. So they're going to use this five frames between when she's actually talking to a ticket taker. And there's a whole interaction with him that's not there to bridge. So just like the deconstruction of this movie is also really fascinating and and edifying. And so read the script and watch it with the script. If if you want to learn about filmmaking. I thought I had constantly on this latest rewatch was if there was any movie I could point to that showcases what a great editor can do yes it's this movie like this is an (laughs) this is an editor's movie because it's not just the showy stuff there's there's showy editing in this movie there's amazing like free association kind of transitions between scenes which the transitions so good there's showy editing but then there's also the the invisible editing which Mm -hmm. because so much of it is compressing time and just kind of moving us through scenes very rapidly, but not in a way that feels fatiguing or that I never feel like I'm disjointed or 
kind of there's there's films that are cutty in a bad way where it just there's constant cuts that make you feel fatigued and kind of just serve to disorient. And in this film, the cutting actually serves to orient and to keep me in a flow and keep me engaged. And so I just it, it feels like uh, magic to me, like there's some kind of dark magic in the editing of this film <laughs> because it it seems like a mess. But at the same time, it's perfect. And you could, like I wouldn't change a single edit in this whole mm. movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I think part of what why this movie is special is that it it's allowed also because of the content of the story. Like it's right. a journey through somebody's sure. mind. It's yeah. supposed to be kind of hard, like crazy and free associated and like dream like. And so there there is this freedom that's given to be super experimental and do whatever you need to do in the editing to tell the story efficiently. But I will say, even in the real world world scenes. Yeah, I think on a lesser editor, you would feel you would feel that they were trying to fix a scene or feel that they were trying to skip lines. But there's some there's some kind of effortlessness here that even in not surreal scenes, the the kind of rapid pace of the edit never feels disorienting. Aided incredibly by the sound mix. Yes, like, sound. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even I don't even know where to start with how brilliantly this thing is mixed and put together because you have these insane transitions that visually your eye has no idea what it's looking at. We don't know where we are. Like you've got lights going off and on <laughs> everywhere. And like you're, you know, they have all you know, we can get into it, but like a lot of improv happening as well. And like just kind of being in the moment with characters, you have three cameras on set for large chunks of this. Wow. So, and like people sitting in like rolly chairs, like <laughs> getting different <laughs> angles on around. stuff. And yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so if you're just cutting all of that footage, like soundlessly, I don't even know how you would do it. But because of the sound mix in here and the way that the dialogue is woven through like we're paying attention to different moments in the dialogue and different ideas that are being drawn out in the dialogue in the same way that like the visuals are doing to us where it's like, look over here now and don't worry about the fact that the, you know, the house is falling into the sea kind of thing. It just kind of is directing your attention through a world that's shifting and deconstructing and the sound mix is guiding you along mm. through that process in an incredible way wild it's interesting to hear you say that because my only negative about this movie and sort of michelle gondry's directing in general is how the dialogue is mixed because i feel like he does this interesting thing where sometimes the dialogue is mixed a little too low and the music is mixed a little too high and i we're not talking tenant here but like where um i i struggle a little bit to feel as connected to the scene as I would if it was mixed mm. more quote unquote traditionally. And I think the pro of that, most of his directing is that you get this very real feeling thing. You feel yeah. like these characters are, you know, just the moment where Joel's about to go out in the ice and she, and, you know, she says, I'll be fine. He goes, huh? You know, just like the fact that these characters, like that's probably mm -hmm. not a written line as much as it was just these characters are sort of sort of semi improvising these scenes. And, uh, but sometimes the dialogue feels like, too dreamy and too low in the mix for me in other Gondry movies it really hurts I think in Eternal Sunshine it hurts a little bit for me but for the most part everything you guys are talking about keeps it from really bothering me that much but there's just this little sense of there are times where I feel like more disconnected than I want to partially because it feels like the dialogue is sort of like 
eluding me a little bit. But as you were saying, especially the editing, the fact that you're always jumping to the next moment, then I never feel like if it was if it was a 20 minute long scene with this mixing, I might struggle with it. But because we're always sort of like, here's the important bit that we need to focus on. Now we can move on. Then it works in this movie really well. Well, and I think I agree with you in the sense that you can't always hear the dialogue. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not super distinct at all times. I would venture to say that's probably intentional. Mm -hmm. I think also what it does is increase the rewatch value of it. Yes. As you were mentioning, Alex, where it's like you are hearing new lines of dialogue and it it keeps you leaning forward too, sure. where you're like, what is being said? I need to know it's really important, probably, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> you should always ask him to repeat it. Always. <laughs> I don't know how much of what I'm praising in the sound mix and what I think really works in the sound mix was absolutely intentional or just there were constrictions with sound recording on set and that might have been something they were dealing mm. with. So one of the, you know, most beautiful little tiny little scenes in this movie is the one where the circus parade is on the street mm. and the elephants are walking by and and Joel and Clementine are just in the crowd. That was a scene that there was just a circus parade like near where they were shooting mm -hmm. and they were like, oh my God, come out here and like, let's quickly shoot out here. So they just ran out there with cameras and, you know, Kate Winslet says that wonderful line, I want to be a great big huge elephant, which is just <laughs> so cute. But you can't you can't really hear it, right? Mm -hmm. The first time you watch that scene, it's such a short little scene because I assume very little of that was usable, right? They were just shooting out on the street in a real crowd. Right. And there was like paparazzi harassing them while yeah, it was happening. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure they they didn't get very much that was usable. And I'm sure that the sound that they got was like, let's crank Kate Winslet's wonderful improv line here all the way up if we can. So again, I have no idea how much of it was like very deliberate. I just think that especially when we're deep in the memory section stuff and you have John Bryan's music going like absolutely crazy mm -hmm. up and down. I don't necessarily mind that I don't hear every single line of dialogue. Um, I'm kind of just letting the experience of the memories visually and like audio, like audially wash over me. Yeah, I would agree with that because I think this movie for sure has dialogue that I still pick up on new nuances yeah. on mm -hmm. repeat viewing still to this day. It's like, oh, I never got that. That's what she was saying here about this. For me, is it was never a problem with understanding or connecting to the characters. It might have been for you, Brian. So that's a valid concern. For me, I never it never was a, a block for me connecting with the characters. I always found that the key plot points were always clear in the dialogue. And a lot of the buried dialogue or more dreamy soundscape dialogue mm -hmm. is kind of more texture or little details that are fun to revisit later. And I just also love, this is more from like a nerd perspective, the amazing use of surround in this movie. Uh, mm -hmm. like, you know, it's a movie that really uses 5.1 surround sound to you know distinguish between voices that are coming from outside of Joel's head yeah. Uh, yeah. to really put you in like a spatial awareness of, of certain moments. And there's mm -hmm. even, I, for the first time, I noticed this on my rewatch in the very beginning of the movie when Joel is in the prologue and he's just wandering on the beach and kind of walks up to the empty house that, in their real first meeting they ended yeah. up in, mm -hmm. you hear like this weird echoey memory sound yep. of Kate Winslet talking. We talked about Lord of the Rings. You can tell when there's love in a movie. The crew has gone this extra mile to just imbue mm -hmm. everything with that extra special, like extra mile. I don't know what the mm -hmm. word for it is. 
<laughs> magic. <laughs> yeah, this the crew has bothered to add these special yeah. touches throughout, which shows a deep love of the work. They're not just doing the bare minimum. And right. it's right. so rewarding to experience a film that feels like at every level that was done. It's, it's so rare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To quickly clarify, uh, like it's for me, it wasn't. A, it's not about that. I can't understand the dialogue, so I feel like, oh, I missed a line. Now I'm taken out of it. It's it's like the the level of it. So the leaning in thing is interesting. There's like science mm. to it that I that I find fascinating. You know, if eight is a comfortable level of volume, if it's at six or seven, you lean in. But if it's at five, you, right. you lean out. You know, and I think that to me, Michelle Gondry has a way of sort of like just burying it enough sometimes that i'm kind of like well now i'm now i'm almost disconnected from it again not much in this movie just in his filmography in general like be kind rewind is a mess of dialogue of like audio mixing and stuff <laughs> what you were just saying alex i totally agree with i was thinking we talked about this in the scott pilgrim episode we talked about it plenty on lord of the rings and eternal sunshine is another example where every moment like you could take any one minute of this movie and talk about it for an hour just because there's yes. so much going <laughs> right. on. You know, there's like all these little set things. I never noticed before. There's a scene where he is about to go into the kitchen with Chinese food and on the TV in front of his body, you see his body holding Chinese food, but it's like out of focus and almost out of frame. It's the kind of thing you could easily call attention to, but they don't. They just sort of have it there for you to notice the the fifth time you watch the movie and not the first time you watch the movie. Um, and yeah, that obviously makes this one of the most rewatchable movies. Um, I also never noticed when the scene where everything is falling apart, you know, the car drops like that amazing sequence. <laughs> yeah. Um, the first time you see the store signs, they're all forwards. And then when mm-hmm. she walks back the other way, they're all backwards. And then when you actually, the camera actually focuses on them, they're all blank. But I never noticed that there's a little backwards moment between the forwards and the blank, you know, all those little things that just are, are really fun to notice the more you watch it ridiculous yeah (laughs) i mean yeah so maybe this is yeah just like a good time to talk about like him and the filmmaking process that happened Mm -hmm. in this movie you know again i i have this weird thing where there's like a battle in filmmaking and like the one side is perfectionism and the other side is like make it real and it's authentic we're capturing actual things and like both sides can be kind of annoying I think to me, mm-hmm. and I feel like this film sits like directly in the middle of all of that, where so much of it is done in this kind of semi-documentary, you know, there's mm-hmm. like some improvisation encouraged, a lot of like, you know, rehearsal and conversations with the actors and exploring happened. And, you know, a lot of Condry's approach was to try to create, make it feel real and like accidental almost and and capture these live moments but also it's a very complex story and a lot needs to be communicated and mm-hmm. put just so and and so i think there's there is this kind of magical yeah combination that happened where there was enough like structure and you know the math done or whatever <laughs> whatever you want to use uh-huh. mixed with enough of all these techniques to put life into it and it creates this kind of perfect blend but it also sounds like such an exhausting process and just hearing an interview with like the production designer was saying yeah basically logic went out the window right away and uh he told the story of like when Orson Welles first came to film he wanted, you know, he had worked in theater and he wanted to achieve the same kind of like the lights go 
down in a theater. And so mm-hmm. he had his cinematographer rig a very complicated lighting mechanism so that on set, they could turn all the lights down and they could film everything going to black. And afterward, the DP was like, you know, we can just fade to black. Like that's a thing we have in film. We can just <laughs> afterward, you can just fade to black. And he's like, oh, interesting. <laughs> and th- so that kind of describing a lot of uh, what it sounds like Gondry's process was, is like trying to reinvent everything and in the process discovering some amazing things and also in the process capturing a lot of things that you don't end up needing or it sounds like even being kind of frustrating to some of the crew where it's like there are ways that we've done this for a hundred years and he doesn't seem to like it and Mm -hmm. after we did all these 10 different trial things we ended up doing it the way we've done it for a hundred years but also some of the times we'd discovered this amazing, awesome way to film this transition or convey this emotion. And so I feel like this film is also just this amazing vessel of like, this is the bad side of trying to make movies too much reality. And this is also the best possible example of trying to make movies feel like reality. And that's just a thing that I, I is always running in my head when I'm watching this movie and thinking about the filmmaking process that went into it. Yeah. Well, one aspect of the reality feeling is the acting and the the performances yes. mm-hmm. because Oh my god. Another part of the rewatchability is there's so much nuance and subtext and just there's so much depth to the performances of every single character. The entire character web is is so brilliantly yes. constructed to begin with as far as like these are the right characters for this movie and their relationships are saying different things about the theme and we can get into all that. But then just moment to moment in every scene, there are so many fun layers to, to watch and access in their performances. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's like, it's just such a joy to watch these characters be with each other. Yeah. One of the behind the scenes things, Kate Winslet says, she goes, it's interesting. I'm playing the Jim Carrey role in this movie and Jim Carrey's playing the Kate <laughs> yeah. Winslet role. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Jim Carrey's done plenty of of sort of non-comedy or non-traditional comedy stuff out there, but this is like one of the most understated roles where he's just, there, there's so little to do. And and I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean it's, you're, you're not sort of doing anything other than taking it all in and kind of reacting. Whereas then obviously Kate Winslet is playing this, this sort of off the rails character. The moment where, she punches him on the train. Jim Carrey, mm-hmm. not expecting that moment at all. <laughs> like the, his reaction yeah, yeah. is genuinely Jim Carrey going, did Kate Winslet just punch me or did Clementine just punch me? <laughs> I think he's incredible in this. And he's so tamped down when we first meet him mm-hmm. in some ways. But you can see flashes of the person that he's going to open up to be and and like the ugliest version of himself that we do end up seeing. Mm. So he's someone essentially likable, quiet, buttoned up when we first meet him on the beach in Montauk in winter, um, right at the beginning. And he doesn't say much. He kind of is just, uh, but you can kind of see already um, when he like decides to run away from the platform, Mm -hmm. right? Where like in his physicality, he's just like, "Ah, I'm getting out of here, you know, like (laughs) screw this. And, and then you see him call his boss at work and, and he's like, no, it's, food poisoning i think i really can't make it in you start to see that he has it's it's like jim carrey had made a career up up until that point playing really lovable jerks Mm. it's because it's not just like his outrageousness that we kind of think of as being jim carrey but the kinds of roles that he was playing were like 
these are not good guys. Um, but he's so animated that you want to watch his face when he plays these, you know, kind of parts. Right, because he also made a career of having a crazy face, like Fire Marshal Bill <laughs> right. and sure. The Mask and Ace Ventura right. and that kind of yeah. thing. And yeah, that's not exactly. what you get in this movie. Right. I'm thinking of like Liar Liar, right? Sure. Where he's like, this guy is a bad dude. And that's comedy needs that, right? We've talked a lot about how like comedy needs assholes. Mm-hmm. And so like he is that. And Joel goes to those places where we can see Joel later on be really mean and and very cruel to Clementine, mm-hmm. right? Not that she doesn't dish it back or anything <laughs> like that, but just we have to see the capacity for it's not that he doesn't express his emotions ever. It's that he's perfectly capable of choosing to express his emotions in an unkind way. And he does do that. And that's like embedded in the character right from the beginning. And then those moments are the ones sometimes that stand out to me most about his performance, where like, you know, when you think about his line, constantly talking isn't necessarily communicating. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's a mean thing to say. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, some of the other things that really do set Clementine off where he's like, do you really think you could handle a kid, right? You can't expect that to go over well, but he's he's purposefully choosing to express himself in a way that that could be hurtful, and he knows that. And so I think it's such an interesting performance from him where we, we do essentially have to like Joel, but we also have to see the dark place and the dark person that Joel can be sure. right from the very beginning. The writer, the director, the actors, really, they did the work to understand the character's psychology because... You're pointing sure. out there's these key things that are really hurtful to Clementine and Joel, like they trigger her. Like they, when he brings up, like you get people to like you by essentially dangling sex in front of them. Like, mm-hmm. you know, that, right. that's almost like, you know, that's getting at some insecurity, some deep fear she has about herself in a really hurtful way. And there's a reason mm-hmm. why that is the thing that both sets her off when they actually broke up. And then even at the very, very end, when she hears him say that on the tape, she like wants to mm-hmm. leave, you know, so it, they have a really consistent psychology worked out for these characters of here are your your pain points. Here's how you hurt each other. And it's very consistent and very well thought out. Definitely. Yeah. Well, and that each character has so much contradiction within them. They mm-hmm. are like this very well rendered three dimensional being each each one of them and and you know Joel, you know, in that same conversation where I, I think it's the same conversation where Joel says talking isn't the same as communicating it's also she's trying to get him to talk like he's always been criticized for not speaking up and then when he does he says these kind of awful things and so we kind of also get maybe why he's afraid to speak and express himself well she gets mad at him you know he talks and she gets mad at him for talking because he said this thing yeah and I feel like that's there with all of the characters where like you as you're saying Alex there's the psychology where there's there's some underlying fear that you can sense that explains this complicated behavior that they have. And that every single character basically has that is extremely impressive. Well, so I'm obsessed with this Charlie Kaufman speech that he gave. In 2011, he spoke at the British Academy of Film and TV. It's long. You can Google it. It's like an hour, you know, basically of just Charlie Kaufman standing on stage talking not very cohesively about any one thing. But (laughs) but what he says, I mean, is just incredible uh, the way that he expresses himself and it's a really wonderful speech so i recommend that you watch it all but he talks a lot about essentially contradictions or i'm going to use the word paradox because i want to use that word a lot 
moving forward from here, <laughs> but essentially contradiction or paradox in character. And I have a couple of quotes written down from that uh, speech that he gave. And one of the ones is, I find myself in this push-pull relationship with my desires, which is a big part of what characters are and characters do in real life. Well, people in real life, characters in movies should. <laughs> and so he's talking about, you know, this exact, the entire plot of this movie is predicated on Joel makes a decision, then Joel unmakes a decision. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's the whole thing. Midpoint. Midpoint. <laughs> he decides to erase Clementine, then he decides he doesn't want to erase Clementine. That is the only thing that changes that that's driving the plot. Mm -hmm. The twists and turns of the plot are the character contradictions and this push pull with their desires. Another quote from that same Baptist speech is at every single moment, every single person wants something, often many things, often conflicting things. Understand this about your characters and yourselves. And so I feel like Charlie Kaufman took these these two quotes basically from himself or just things, something that I think he understands probably about himself and about people, maybe very vividly or more than the rest of us do and built an entire movie around it, right? Like we absolutely think we know what we want. We do not. We want two things that contradict each other that can't exist at the same time to exist at the same time. That is paradox. Mm -hmm. And that is what Eternal Sunshine is. Well, right. And like, and that's, that's the theme and that all the characters are, are struggling with that of, you know, wanting love and relationships, but kind of only wanting the good part or the easy part, like not knowing how to do the hard part, whatever that hard part is mm -hmm. for them. And it seems like, you know, every character is like a different manifestation of that struggle. And I think that's just that it can be so ever present and also just the mechanics of, you know, people in this world have their memories erased. And so we get to see them still pursuing the thing, like even though they've erased that. That they actively decided they didn't want to pursue. Right. It's such a yes, Here they are statement again. about yeah, yeah the, the human brain. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, an early version of the script ends with Clementine, like an elderly Clementine going in to erase Joel for a 16th time. Oh my God. Which, Ugh, right. dark. if you think about it, that means 15 times they got back together. <laughs> like it's, you know, it's so it's, it's happy. It's bittersweet. It's happy and it's sad. And the thing we've talked about plenty on this, uh, in the show is thesis, antithesis, synthesis being sort of the three acts of, of a film. And the synthesis is that sort of fantasy you know, the end of every romantic comedy or fantasy movie, you know, Disney movie, whatever, where it's like, now everything's fine. Now mm -hmm. the characters got together and they're going to be happy forever. They're yes. going to be happy forever yes. now, you know? <laughs> and I remember even at, even at like age 11, I was going, show me, uh, yeah, show me Aladdin and Jasmine <laughs> in two months, see how they're doing. Um, and uh, then they did in the sequel, and I didn't care. <laughs> but yeah, but I think that what's beautiful about this movie is that they're, the synthesis is... Instead of a synthesis, it's sort of an acceptance of the thesis and the antithesis sort of have to coexist. Like every relationship, mm -hmm. yeah. every, not right. just every relationship, everything about life has ups and downs and you, you, you accept one in order to get the other. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the things I think is so interesting about this structurally is that it actually is perfectly structured. Yes. Mm -hmm. Even though it, it is, you know, certainly not what you would point to as an example. It's not a Christmas carol. It's not like neat <laughs> right, and tidy, right, 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 or whatever. And Kaufman also like poo-poo's structure. Right. It's very anti-it. He doesn't get to direct his movies all the time. So <laughs> Thank an editor. By the way, I love real quick Kaufman poo-pooing uh, structure. John York quotes that in his book. And then one of the appendices of his book is just uh, John York laying out the exact structure of being John Malkovich and how it fits into like his perfect five-act thing in every way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, maybe you shouldn't be quite so good, Charlie. Uh, right, right. <laughs> like subconsciously, like just because you don't you don't need conscious structure. Yeah. Doesn't mean that it's not in there. But no. So one thing I love about this, though, is that the inciting incident, you know, is Joel decides to erase Clementine. And we talk about the crisis being the worst possible outcome of the inciting incident. Yeah. Which is Joel erases Clementine, mm -hmm. right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like the scene at the house is it's the perfect crisis climax moment. Yeah. yeah, he got exactly what he set out to do, and it turns out to be the worst possible thing because by that point he doesn't want it. Yeah, this movie has a million of my favorite lines ever, but one of them <laughs> is is the kind of the realization of being at the crisis point where you're seeing them meet for the first time. And mm -hmm. she comes and sits with him and like takes his food and stuff. Mm -hmm. And then she has, you know, she says like, this is it, Joel. This like, it. it's yeah. all going to be gone. What do we do? And he just says, enjoy it. Like, that's such a beautiful, like, yeah, expression of not trying to fight this thing anymore and like accepting the truth of like, yes, this is going to suck. But like, also, this is great. And so maybe the best you can just do is to try to enjoy it. And I just love that so much in this movie yeah mm -hmm. well so much of the power of this movie reminded me of why i love soul so much recently is there's a very mm -hmm. similar bittersweet life lesson feeling of yeah you get the thing you want but actually the truth is not this simple you know right. like oh just get rid of the bad stuff and you'll be happy it's both it's both and it's really telling that at the midpoint of this movie is the moment Joel realizes that to erase Clementine is is not just to get rid of this bad thing in his life, but is also going to get rid of these incredibly beautiful, happy, good memories and good mm -hmm. things. And he realizes, oh, they come together. Like you can't just get mm -hmm. get rid of one without the other. And that's essentially what he needs is to learn that you know that if, what he wants is to get rid of Clementine and, and kind of be rid of her as this burden on his mind. And what he learns is that, like, anything worthwhile in life is going to have both. And that's and that's really what he's why he says, OK, at the end, you know, him yeah. saying OK, at the end of the movie is showing that he learned that lesson. Right. Mm -hmm. One thing I've always found fascinating is that this movie doesn't make their second meeting a plot twist. 30 minutes into the movie, you see them meeting for the what we assume is the first first time uh who knows if they met 14 other times before but <laughs> but so you already know now we've seen them meet twice clearly they're going to meet a second time so you like if you are doing the brain work you already know that which which time are we talking about wait <laughs> yeah wait, I'm, I'm not following this when she has green hair and they meet on the beach the the when he's telling the story about how they first met when he's getting her erased yeah but that's near that's near the end of the movie at the end no it's 30 minutes in they they do they cut to it briefly earlier. Oh, you're right. You're right. There's a really brief moment. But it yeah. doesn't tell the whole story of like they go to the house and he runs away. It just is like we're at the picnic. Right. But we know at that point that 
they met for the first time at the beach at a picnic. Right. At the picnic. Yeah. We know that 30 minutes into the movie, which means we already know. Again, you don't necessarily know this in your soul, but if you're thinking about it, you already know we've already seen them meet for the first time on a train, which means the train must be the second time they meet. And even if you follow just her hair color throughout the movie, like it hasn't gotten to blue yet throughout the course of their relationship. But the fact that you guys are all looking at me confused proves what I'm about to say, which is this movie is so dense and sort of so complex in its non-linearity that it sort of doesn't matter. Like there's there's a more Hollywood version of this movie where they hide in every possible way the fact that the train meeting is their post erasure right. meeting. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't change your hair color. You don't say anything about how they met for the first time. But this movie sort of puts it out there and says, we're going to show you that they meet twice right away. And then you're already going to know that they meet for the second time on the train. But what's cool is Eternal Sunshine, Forrest Gump, Fight Club, even Memento to a weird degree. Like they show you the end of the movie right at the beginning. But it's not the end end chronologically. It's 95% of the way to the end. There's still a little mm-hmm. sort of twist coming. So I don't want to say twist, but the the resolution of Eternal Sunshine is not that they meet for a second time. It's that they meet for a second time and then find out that they erased each other and then decide to continue their relationship anyway. So it's like, even though it's not a plot twist that they meet for the second time, you still have no idea how anything is going to resolve until literally the final line of the movie. And that's really cool. Right. This movie leaves you a ton of clues along the way, too. Like, as you're saying, Brian, where once we meet Elijah Wood, Mm -hmm. you know, where he goes into Lacuna or whatever, they're going, they, they show up to do the erasure and stuff. It's interesting how they hide Patrick, but don't hide him. Right. You know, a little bit where he's there and we know He's Patrick. He works for Lacuna. We're kind of starting to piece some things together. They're hiding him. Joel tries to see his face. He can't, right, in different memories and things like that. But we kind of know, all right, this person is the same guy that we saw at the beginning knock on his window and ask him if he needed help. Mm -hmm. So we know that, you know, it's all going to come around, which brings me back to the paradox of this movie in the structure, Mm. which is that the end, as you're saying, Brian, the end is the beginning, really. Like, so when we use the word paradox we often think about it in like a time travel movie sense where we're thinking about back to the future and it's like you can't meet yourself in the past that would create a paradox which would end all of life but that's kind of what this movie leans into on every level you know both in the character contradictions also in the structure where it opens at the end and then it brings us all the way back there And then as you're mentioning, Brian, there's like a coda where it's like, well, what happens after this part then? Right. Which then brings us to, you know, up to that wonderful scene where they're listening to each other say terrible things (laughs) Uh about their relationship. They're listening to a breakup tapes, essentially, while they're thinking about about to get together for what they think is the first time, which is an incredible paradox right there at the end. It's interesting in the script also that there are even more signals uh, planted. I found anyway mm-hmm. reading it that mm-hmm. you know they're on the train. They're talking about their favorite song and like on this album. And then shortly after, someone mentions that album, and Joel says, "Oh, I've never heard of that." So it feels like in the script there were a lot more clear signals to let you know that like time was kind of being messed with. And so it's interesting because after reading it and then watching the movie, it feels like they actually removed some of that. 
for the movie so that there is more to hide it a little better yeah yeah, right. yeah exactly yeah and i think that's also what makes it still feel like the sort of like sixth sensian mystery that you're sort of piecing together again even though the the fact that they meet twice is revealed to you in the first act of the movie basically there's so many little lines and details like oh i don't know huckleberry hound or whatever that like slowly right. get revealed to you where even watching the movie for the 10th time you're sort of going "Keo, i know what that line means i know where that's going to come in later so it's, it's so it's sort of a weird experiment or just an interesting example of a movie where it doesn't matter that they reveal a very big thing to you early on because everything else, so many little things, you know, if it's like if a movie reveals this character kills this character, like in the opening scene, you still don't know how that's going to happen as you then watch these characters meet and fall in love or who who knows what until you get to that point. So you're, you're constantly going, I know what's going to happen. I just don't know how yet. And that's, uh, you know, that's really just, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Part of why I think maybe all of us were confused when you brought up that 30 minutes in thing is I don't think I at all in the first viewing had the wherewithal to be like tracking like where I was in time and space and and being like, oh, this means that like their train meeting is some other like later meeting after they've both had their memories erased. Like there, there's so much to take in during that phase of the movie where I mean, I'm just talking about my experience is is like. It's sandwiched with all this new information about Lacuna and like the brain erasure procedure. And here's all the objects from your life with Mm -hmm. her. And so actually that part just kind of sweeps by for me, at least on an early viewing where I don't even really know how to process what I'm seeing. I've only seen the movie since then knowing what it all means. So it's, it's interesting. I never clocked that moment as being a reveal. Because it was never a reveal for me until after I'd seen the movie a couple of times. And, and I think that's what the movie does. But how bonkers is it that the movie literally shows you the characters meeting for the first time twice? The movie is still sort of so complex and, and mystery weaving enough that that doesn't even like clock in your brain. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. It is also a shot of her on the beach. Which is close. Yeah. So we know that like he met her on the beach. So I I feel like... This is not like against your point. I think it's it's actually like showing how clever it is. Yeah, that it can mm-hmm. be doing it's it's working on like twenty different levels all at once with intentionality on all those levels also, which I think is what mm-hmm. is kind of makes it this crazy, insane masterpiece where the more you understand what the hell is going on, the more you understand how crazy it is what's going on. Like you just end up more confused or more impressed by the number of things that it was juggling. The entire time. Right. Yeah. Well, and one of the most amazing things about this are the settings. Like, Mm -hmm. this is an incredible conglomeration tour of these, like, settings that are all just, first of all, visually stunning. Like, we talked a little bit about the production design. But just even thinking about some of the stuff where, like, they're in the Chinese restaurant and then it's full of people and it's like a normal Chinese restaurant. Seconds later, Joel is in there and they're still in the walls of the Chinese restaurant, Mm -hmm. but there's only one table. Right. And like everything else around it is dark. And so you might not notice, but you are still in, you know, the same restaurant. And but he's just at that one table. I don't know. Thinking, too, about different like the We talked about the house on the beach in Montauk is like visually so interesting. And then it's like the distance that it is from the ocean is constantly right. being messed with. Mm-hmm. And then that, and that climax is almost like the ocean's coming into it. And, yeah. mm-hmm. Right. Is like rising into it and stuff like that. But then even just like Joel and Clementine's apartments 
have this geography to them that are are visually really interesting, but create the kind of mazy effects, you know, disorienting effect that the script is going for. So, and of course, the the biggest and best one is the beach that we return to many different times, and that's where the movie also closes. Mm-hmm. Right, the very last image, the very last frame of it is there receding they're running down the beach you know in the snow part of the reason why all of the settings and all of the images we remember from this movie are so striking because paradox is incorporated into the settings and Mm -hmm. into the images as well so you have a meet cute on a beach oh well that's cute like that sounds like a rom-com thing nope it's the middle of winter yeah covered in snow yeah yep they're miserable they're the only people there joel hates sand Um, (laughs) of course it gets everywhere that's why michael loves this movie yep they're there and and it's just like a beach in winter is a paradox. That's not what we think of when you hear the word beach. A picnic at night. She's like, we should go up for a night picnic out on the frozen Charles. <laughs> a night picnic is a paradox. Why would anyone do that? Right? Like doing something dangerous, which is, you know, being out on a cracked and frozen river is romantic, right? Breaking and entering the house in Montauk <laughs> is romantic, right? Is it? But even like some of the other surrealist images are that as well. People being adults and children at the mm-hmm, same time, mm-hmm. which is just really this beautiful, you know, poignant image right there in the second half of the movie. Rain, the rain in the living room yes. as the rain yeah. falls Always down rain. on the couch. And oh, it's so be- it's so but rain indoors is a paradox. Uh-huh. The movie is doing the thing. But it shouldn't like every movie should have rain everywhere. Like, I'm already pro rain, and I love that this movie is just like rain inside now, yeah. also. Like, yes. Yes. I also love the shot. Yeah. It's not really a paradox as much as it's just sort of illogical. The shot where he walks out of the bookstore and then he sits down on Robin Carey's steps, Incredible. you know, all yes. in one shot. It's just really nice. As part of almost some of the early selling of, oh, this is how this world's going to work. When we're inside his mind, we're going to be doing these really amazing transitions between you know, time and space. And I feel like that's like, that's like a really standout shot as like, this is what we're doing people like strap, strap in. (laughs) I just feel like if you're trying to create that bittersweet feeling. Yes. You know, if you're writing a dramedy, which is a genre that is putting two things together that probably shouldn't be together. Right. Mm -hmm. You're trying to make your audience laugh and cry. Good luck to you. First of all, indie filmmaker. But (laughs) if you're trying to do that, then embrace paradox because what creates that feeling i mean this is a a good rule for images anyway and i've talked a little bit about it before i think i was talking about it in the stranger things episode where you take something familiar and you lift it and take it somewhere novel that's a really good just sort of rule of thumb if you're looking for like a striking similar image but in this case especially if you're looking for paradox do it on every level Mm -hmm. and do it in your settings let your production design create paradox as they are setting out especially you know this has surrealist elements and sci-fi elements yet it's a relationship movie and feels deeply human (laughs) like you're you're doing it at the same time um and you can if you like lean into some of this stuff thematically and take that all the way through every element of production yeah when you started to bring up setting and production design one of the first things that came to my mind was just how emotional setting feels in this in this Mm -hmm. film and and it's cool to identify paradox as maybe one of the keys to creating emotional settings it's it's you're not you're not giving us a beach that's sunny and bright 
what we'd expect. It's a snowy, cold, sad beach. And that is a very particular emotion that comes out of that. Another paradox that I think is used for comedy and is so brilliantly designed in this film is just the staff of Lacuna. Because you you expect yes. you expect <laughs> right. like the sci-fi technology place to be run to be cool like they yeah. be run by like you know lab coat <laughs> like expert scientists who are very serious about their work and you know they're they're erasing his mind so it's like of course they're very smart people who know what they're doing but no it's like Stan and Patrick are just these like average Joes <laughs> who don't really like they don't they don't like their job that much they're just kind of going through the motions they bring their case of beer they're not that good at right. it yeah <laughs> like, they're, like they're they're the guys that do the bare minimum to like get by at their job. And it's just it's so much fun. Once again, the like the normal straight version of this would be the sleek, mm -hmm. super smart scientist people come to his house to erase his memory. But no, it's like the bumbling idiots. Right. And then, you know, and then uh, I, I freaking love Kirsten Dunn's character, uh, Mary. Yeah. Like she's such a she's so good. Such a great character. Performance is so wonderful. And just that trio. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And all the weird subtext and character things going on like adds a whole layer of like actual like suspense and tension on the like real life level because they're erasing sure. his brain and they're like so ill-equipped to do it and they're like totally gonna screw this up yeah they're like drunk and high yeah. and yeah. eating yeah. and drinking and dancing yeah in their underwear yeah what a great yeah. use of those characters and that situation yeah, I feel like that that's kind of like the the last big thing I wanted to make sure that we like highlighted was that there's so much that's really great about Joel and Clementine and the journey through his brain, but also those top level real life characters are kind of just as compelling. Like it doesn't feel like 100%. you're leaving yeah. something interesting behind when you are up there with them. It feels like you're just as involved in the, you know, the character dynamics of, you know, Mary doesn't like Elijah Wood, but like he's mm -hmm. kind of a buddy and he's trying to date real Clementine. Like it's so interwoven with everything, both like literally sometimes and of course thematically. And I feel like Mary's arc is in some ways just as powerful. Like the, the reveal that she and Howard had this relationship and then she perhaps at his insisting had this memory erasure like done. Like it's about Joel and Clementine, but then it's also about this greater group of people and this kind of weird technology, like the, the story world that gets set up in the beginning gets answered and resolved at the end as Mary's like taking down the Kuna essentially. Mm-hmm. It's such a small story world, ultimately. It's really interesting yeah. Yeah. to have like a sci-fi premise. Right. But it, it just works so well and lets it be about all those things and more. It just lets it work on these very big levels and these like tiny levels. And yeah, I'm just I'm very struck by that every time because I kind of forget about it. But when you rewatch it, I'm just as engaged and also just love Mark Ruffalo, like yeah. young Mark Ruffalo. He's so good. <laughs> it's so much fun. Like I, I love every human in this movie. Right. Yes. Like I just yes. I just yeah. love all these human beings. And yeah. and I and Elijah Wood's performance is brilliant too as mm -hmm. this as this guy weirdo <laughs> creep. <laughs> yeah, as this guy who like he he just he doesn't think about Clementine as like a human even really. It, it, it's it's that it's that really sad dude version of like, I'm going to pretend to like care and like know things that will make you happy. Well, he thinks she's a concept. Right. That's really yeah, what it, it is. It's truly yeah. that like, like she is an idea that he is 
Like, yeah. Yeah. But it's also sad. Like, I feel like he's like all these people want connection and are like trying to find love and they're just all inequipped to do so in all these really interesting ways that again, just resonate this idea of like, yeah, love is hard. Look at how hard it can be. Look at how messy it can be. So knowing all that, are you still okay going for it? Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think what's great about all the characters, too, is they're all lovable in that way, where none of them are really malevolent. They're all just kind of confused and don't know what they're doing and just going about it the wrong way. It's, it's great. Right. Yeah. Stan, the character, Mark Ruffalo's character, Stan, is so interesting because he knows or like deeply suspects that Mary is in love with Howard and he lets it happen. Where like, She's like, let's let's call him. He can come over. He can fix it. And, you know, at first you're like, okay, yeah, he's worried about his job, all of this stuff. And then he leaves them alone together on purpose, right? Where he's like, okay, I'm going to go out and get some air. And he walks out to the street. and But he's like then just standing looking in the window. Like, it's almost like his curiosity about what's going to happen overrides, like, the fact that he really, you know, is into Mary and really likes her. And then he honks the horn, which is like the best move ever. When <laughs> I love how she slaps him also. Oh, uh, yeah. I love it too. His wife is great. Yeah. When his wife shows up. But I don't know. I just, I love his character so much. And Mark Ruffalo's performance is so, uh, it's just, it's really, I don't know, vulnerable and understated too. And like, you can see that he, he wants to be with Mary, but he kind of knows she doesn't want to be with him. And that's like a weird place for him to be where he's like, I I really want to be with this girl that I really like, but I suspect deeply she's into somebody Mm -hmm. else. And he's kind of wrestling with that. Well, I also wonder he does. He tells her at the end of the movie. No, I didn't know about you and Howard, but the way he mm-hmm. acts in that, in that scene where he leaves, and then he even tries to warn them about uh, Howard's wife showing up makes me mm-hmm. wonder if he actually, he did know. And he maybe was part of the era- erasing procedure and maybe thought he had a chance with Mary now that Howard had been erased. You know, I, I, I read mm-hmm. it in a different way on this viewing that maybe he actually did know the whole time. I mean, I think the whole point of giving him that scene where he says, you just looked happy, you know, and, but then I never saw mm-hmm. the entire point of writing that scene is to not frame him as that character. I mean, he's not the, he's not the, the, the Elijah Wood character. Who's just like, well, now that you've, now that you got him out of here. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Right. What he says there is the important part is like, like you looked happy. And I feel mm-hmm. like he does want her to be happy. And this is a world in which, right everything is super messy like all the relationships like joel and this is in the script more but like joel's like has a fiance and then it's like living with a woman when he's meeting clementine and like falling in love with clement so like in this world all the relationships are messy and again the paradox of humans wanting conflicting things happening and so yeah i feel like there's you can definitely maybe read his characters as a little suspicious there but i think it's more i like to read it as yeah him understanding that there's a thing that will make her happy right and that's messy but it knows he knows that he can't be in the room kind of i don't know that's a much nicer way to read it it's all it's a messy movie for sure yeah Yeah. i really like that scene i just like how he he concludes with just i really like you yeah right like that's kind of his last thing and he like you know she's obviously leaving forever the office and they're not going to work together anymore. And like a lot of stuff has been blown up in her life and he's just kind of going to shoot his last shot. And it's just, I really like you, you know? Yeah. Ah, Mark Ruffalo. <laughs> what a treasure. With his messy hair and his glasses. Yeah. Oh, he's so good in this. Yeah. yeah. 
2004, another Mark Ruffalo performance. Collateral, also. Mark Ruffalo yeah. is both of these people oh, wow. within the yeah. same wow. year. So What a year. Yeah. When was that other movie that has like a very boring title, and that's why I can't remember it? Let us know when you find it. <laughs> In the meantime, <laughs> why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Eternal Sunshine and the Spotless Mind. Trisha, do you want to start? Time out. We don't live here anymore. Also 2004, also Mark Ruffalo. What was he doing? <laughs> He was having a Killing great it. year. <laughs> yeah. Killing it. Just want to talk a little bit about the midpoint and about Clementine, especially because we haven't spent a ton of time getting to really dive into Clementine and who she is in this movie. And I think it's so striking how in the first half of the second act where we're going into like erasure world, all of the memories that Joel has of Clementine are basically bad. Mm hmm. Right. Like we met Clementine during the meet cute at the beginning on the train and we like her. She's weird, <laughs> but she's, you know, she's beautiful and interesting. And like, we like her essentially. The first half of the second act really has to sell us on this relationship has gone very bad. And so those first few scenes with Joel and Clementine, they're both really awful. But the POV that we as the audience have of Clementine in the first half of the second act is very unflattering. It's basically Joel's POV um, where he's sitting at home waiting. She comes in. She's drunk. I kind of sort of wrecked your car, right? Like it's both in the dialogue. It's in Kate Winslet's performance, but it's also in how she's framed. We're not close to her for that whole sort of first half of the second act. Even stuff at the Chinese restaurant. We, we're kind of looking right at her, but we're hearing Joel's thoughts narrating what she's doing, mm -hmm. right? Where he's like, are we the dining dead? We're like a couple that doesn't have anything to talk about at restaurants. And again, we're getting this POV from Joel that is very unflattering to Clementine. And I think it's so critical, this scene at the midpoint, which is the one where they're under that quilt. They're lying on the floor under that multicolored quilt. Mm. It's beautifully lit. <laughs> it's so beautiful, that scene with all of those beautiful colors. But that's where we're finally starting to get a beautiful portrait of Clementine. Mm -hmm. She gives a monologue about the ugly girl doll. And it's not the same monologue that was in the script. Mm. The script has a totally different monologue for Clementine, which Kate Winslet did on the day. And I'm sorry to have to tell all of you this, but you can't unsee it once you know it. You actually can't quite see Clementine's face for most of that speech because you're hearing Kate Winslet's voiceover because she re-recorded a different monologue mm -hmm. oh. that they're playing over that scene. I was wondering, about, like watching this time, I was yes. like, why are we not seeing Kate Winslet for so much of this? Interesting. Yeah. But I think it's interesting that we're cutting away to the, like other these abstract images. We cut to the doll, right? And then we, we cut to her face when she's not speaking, mm -hmm. which is just so beautifully and softly lit under these like, you know, incredible colored lights. But we're finally starting to see a softer portrait of Clementine and we're seeing Joel's reaction. There's real intimacy in that scene that up until that point has been absent. We have not been sold on their intimacy up until that point. I can't speak to why they decided. I don't remember enough about the original monologue why Gondry and Kaufman decided that wasn't the right monologue. But I think that the monologue they landed on, which is about vulnerability and loneliness, right? Mm -hmm. This desire for intimacy. They don't actually, I don't I don't know exactly how much they actually kiss in this movie, but but that is where they get together. You know, we see them 
like kissing under this blanket at the midpoint. And that is the moment when Joel says, just let me keep this one. Mm -hmm. And it tips us toward like, it's not, it's not quite the real midpoint is I want to call it off. Right. Right. Where Joel like shouting at the heavens, I want to call it off. That is to me the first hint of I've made a terrible mistake. This is something incredibly beautiful that I don't want to lose. And just hats completely off to Michelle Gondry, Charlie Kaufman for writing a new monologue, Kate Winslet for delivering a new monologue in VO afterward, and then the editing of that scene, the way that it's put together. That's the scene I just think about every time Mm. I think about this movie and can't get over it. And it's so important because we need to be on that journey with Joel where we need to want him to call it off. We need to start feeling that loss. Something real is going to be lost here if you don't find a way out of this path that you started down. Right. I'll also add on to that that I love the choice to give him, uh, to give Joel a dream Clementine to sort of go on this second half of the movie adventure with because mm-hmm. so much of what we see up until that point is this not good relationship, you know? And then right. so we have to believe that the relationship would work. So one, having a, a sort of fictional imagined clementine with him mm-hmm. one it gives him someone to talk to so that like we can hear you know it gives him like a, a partner two it gives us more time of seeing them together and caring about each other and loving each other even if it's sort of a semi-fictional version of clementine it still just makes us as the audience go i like these two these two seem like they're having a nice time together and then three it turns the second half of the movie or at least the second half of the second act into like an action chase movie with a ticking clock, yeah. you know, where suddenly he's like, you know, we got to go, we got to go through here. And like, let's go to my subconscious and we got to cut. And suddenly it's like, now there are these two partners in crime trying to make it through mm-hmm. this maze before time runs out. And that's so much more entertaining to watch than if it was literally just Joel wandering through his subconscious by himself and like, you know, trying to, to not forget this person. I love the dynamic when they're in the woods. Yeah. Like it's like a little bit of a sunnier scene. And she's like, you know, well, why don't you just wake yourself up? And he's like, oh, you know, that's not going to work. And she's like, well, isn't that just one of Joel's self-defeating prophecies? Uh You can see that there's contention in their relationship. It's not perfect. They don't perfectly get along. They're not, they're not completely kind to each other when they could be right. But we, they have a great dynamic where they're friends and they're, they're solving a problem together, even when they're kind of like, let's not make this about our relationship. Let's just see if we can solve this problem for a second. Right. And she's like, oh, you know me, I'm impulsive. He's like, that's what I love about you. We are continuing to be invested in it in the second half because, yeah, as you're saying, Brian, like once that tipping point comes of like, I want to call it off and it becomes a chase, we have to have that team dynamic mm-hmm. going on. Yeah. One of the things Jim Carrey talked about was that part of the fun, and I think part of the reason those scenes are fun, but part of the fun for the actors was, yes, it's we're trying to get away from, you know, the dream people, but we've got to like navigate this crazy web. But in every scene they go in, there's fun to be had and just the weirdness mm-hmm. of the situation. Yeah. So it's not just laser focused on like, got to find the exit. Right. But it's like, baby Joel is going to have a whole thing. Like there's yeah. going to be a lot of baby Joel time. Or <laughs> a like, lot of baby Joel. Yeah. Keeps the movie fun during all of that kind of more intense built up stuff also. Mm -hmm. It's also in the second half where we get more real world Clementine dealing with Patrick, you know, so I think the whole second half of the movie really brings her character in with more agency and it's not just Joel's bad memories of her from that point on. We're really with Clementine more and more. Well, and you risk losing the audience's sympathy for her 
if you don't have her in the second, like real world Clementine with Patrick, right. where we see that she isn't happy or she knows that something is wrong. Mm-hmm. Like she she can sense that Patrick isn't Joel and something is up. It keeps us interested, but it also keeps us sympathetic toward real world Clementine, because otherwise we might remember that she did erase him first. Right. <laughs> like, well, she's she's suffering as a consequence of that, which, exactly. which makes her likable again. Totally. Yeah. Brian, what's your lesson? So I was thinking about voiceover this time around. And anytime I think about voiceover in movies, I think about the other Charlie Kaufman movie, Brian Cox as Robert McKee in adaptation saying, God help you if you use voiceover. <laughs> just always think of that line because not only is it like just a one of those screenwritery things you think about, but also it's just funny because he's interrupting the actual voiceover mm-hmm. that's happening. I, I just think voiceover is interesting. Like it's very helpful, obviously, to put you in a character's head, but it's also it can be a really easy way to tell something instead of finding a more interesting, like lean forward two plus two kind of way to tell you how a character's feeling. And it sort of has this fourth wall problem where it's like, is the character talking to to me or am I hearing their thoughts? Like what, you know, like American beauty, like let right, me tell right. you about da da da. And it's like, so this character is like reaching through the movie and talking right. to me as the audience, which is a choice, obviously. Something I never appreciated until watching uh, Eternal Sunshine just the other day is how often Charlie Kaufman uses it, but how it's always written into the narrative. So in Being John Malkovich, Mm. you hear voiceover when the characters are in Malkovich's head. So like they don't physically exist anywhere. So the only possible way you can hear them is by hearing voiceover. In adaptation, we're literally watching the movie that he's writing. So we are hearing the sort of script being read to us, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Eternal Sunshine, it starts with Joel reading his diary so that we are hearing a, right. a journal mm. entry. And then once we're in his memories, well, now we're inside his head. So of course it makes sense that we're hearing his inner monologue, inner monologue because we are inside his head. I can't talk too much about him thinking of any things without spoiling it, but there is a very clear reason why we are hearing the voiceover in the movie, uh, mm. again, written into the narrative. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not super against it as a concept. And I think it's perfectly fine for movies to make the choice of like, this character is just going to talk to you, the audience, and that's how this movie is. But again, it does sort of it does raise this logic question of is this character actually talking to me, the audience, or am I just hearing their thoughts? And some movies are sort of inconsistent with how they handle that. And I just uh, I just like that Kaufman sort of without me even realizing it until now found a way to weave voiceover into the actual logic of the narrative. Plus, there's also an intimacy that you get from hearing a journal entry or from hearing someone's innermost thoughts that you don't get when it's like let me tell you about the time that this happened or whatever you know where now it's like it feels like you are being narrated to because i think there are definitely parts of this movie where i feel the we need joel to say some Mm -hmm. lines so that we know what's going on Mm -hmm. but they're still kind of like addressed to her like when he's saying like this is the last time i saw you or like this is the first time right Right. and i think that helps create like you're saying this intimacy yeah where you feel like you're part of the relationship and and not yeah the other way it could go of like listen audience on this day blah 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 blah, which can be distancing and do the other thing i had a really weird experience this time where my blu-ray player was not playing the center channel like there was a setting that was off oh that's the sound problem you're having (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I fixed it, but 
I know there's voiceover at the beginning of the movie because I know this movie really well, but I thought maybe I just forgot when it happened. So I watched five minutes of the movie of just Joel with no voice walking oh. around and running onto the thing. And of course, I'm hearing all the rest of the sound design. And it's right. not until Clementine on the train says hi that she just opens her mouth and you hear like a train horn in the background where I'm like, something's wrong. But it was so interesting to watch the movie with with like all of the sound design except for the voiceover and be like, wow, this I forgot how like slow and sort of like droopy <laughs> this is opening is. <laughs> That's also just like, as a filmmaker, if you want to learn the importance of sound design, watch a movie without the center channel yeah. and like listen yep. to what like the sound is doing, all the work that it's also doing right? and what the dialogue also has to do. Tangent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Alex, what's your lesson? So we talked about subplots recently on the Hidden Figures episode, just because that movie has so many subplots and they're all well, very well done. And I think this film... I actually broke down this film for myself. I did like a full like scene by scene analysis just as research for my own script, which is trying to do kind of a time travel love story thing. And I I, I do kind of consider this movie like a time travel movie. It it does a lot of the same things where you you show things before, you know, later before they happen. And, you know, there's things that are out of context that you understand later. Anyway, so when breaking down this movie, I was just so struck by what a well-designed subplot the Mary story is essentially. And, yeah. you know, and also Patrick, Patrick's story is also a really great subplot with Clementine, but Mary's story, especially because she has this really strong arc from being a true believer mm-hmm. in, in this technology yeah. and that it's only good. And that Howard is like a savior, you know, who's mm-hmm. curing people of sadness all the way to being essentially like, like a rebel against the system and, you know, taking all the tapes and basically ruining the whole thing by revealing all the patients, what they erased. So it takes her on this really great arc that is totally separate from Joel's story. I mean, her story, she doesn't really care about Joel at all, but her story completely impacts the A plot, yeah. Joel's story. Her being there with Stan distracts him so that he, the machine starts to break down and Joel has the chance mm-hmm. to like escape into his subconscious. You know, because of her, they call uh, the Howard. Howard comes over and is is the antagonist now chasing Joel through his dreams. Uh, and because of her, Joel and Clementine find out at the end, you know, that they were together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just what a, brilliantly designed movie from start to finish but especially if you're going to have these subplots with other characters it's both its own story with its own arc and yet it's completely pivotal to the a plot definitely uh, so mm-hmm. just hats off to everything in this film including <laughs> all subplots it's just all perfect absolutely <laughs> yeah i promised i wasn't gonna pick on the film her but i'm going to very briefly just very briefly <laughs> to support what you're saying which is that i think there are a lot of similarities between this film and her and even like you were saying trisha you know sometimes like joel and clementine aren't like super likable like they're not a yeah you know a, a, what you would call like a stand-up person that you would put in front of everyone and like read this list of description on a piece of paper and be like yes that's a great person <laughs> <laughs> and so I I feel like having these subplot characters and to both round out the theme, but also to help you be investing in other people and also, again, in the theme and this idea of like, well, I want right. love to win generally. I think it helps across the board and helps the investment and in all the other characters. And I kind mm-hmm. of wish her had more of that because it really is just writing basically on on the Joaquin Phoenix character. And right. Scarlett right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's really only an A plot in her. This is a better movie than her. 
<laughs> I love her, wow. but this is a much better movie than her. I mean, this is top of all time for me. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. it's kind of an amazing movie. And um, so I, I was also going to talk about subplot. But so I, I think I'll also just talk about this movie and what it represents as just a, a place to, if you want to learn filmmaking, go pick this movie apart and watch it a million times. Yes. And mm. do what you did out, like do an entire like beat by beat break down, like read the screenplay, watch a scene over and over and over again and ask questions and figure out the answers because it's so much of filmmaking is in this movie. Like it's almost like mm-hmm. anything you ever want to know about filmmaking is somewhere in eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. And even just like approaches to style and special effects versus visual effects and Michelle Gondry's... We didn't like, even talk about visual effects. Uh-huh. Like they hold up so well because they are taking this lo-fi approach it's uh, it's so yeah well, well right there's so much special effects there's like so much of it is on set and like done practically and all this stuff but there's also visual effects and there is digital stuff that's used to enhance and it's the kind of visual effects he uses are the most painstaking and annoying to do but they work and they don't draw attention to themselves and so it's so yeah just there's so much to discover in this film and it deserves to be looked at over and over again and at least revisited if you haven't watched it recently because it's definitely like the best movie ever basically and also then on top of all that the music just is. Which, yeah we didn't have time to <laughs> right. get to but just incredible the music is perfect hashtag cheat codes like you can play this music over anything and just like cut yeah. to like random shots of anything and you'll cry well this is the reason <laughs> yeah. why it was like all of our short film in film school because you just slap this right. soundtrack right. over relationship <laughs> stuff and you're like right. I'm a genius yeah, yeah. you're like yeah here <laughs> it is <laughs> Why don't we quickly go around and say what we've been watching recently. Brian, what have you been watching recently? Uh, I just watched the first season of Ted Lasso on Apple TV Plus, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, Jason Sudeikis as like a super positive American football coach who gets hired to go to London to coach British football, you know, the one where it makes sense that it's called football. And right. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's doing. And he is like the, it's sort of like an R rated version of Elf at first, where he's like the super positive <laughs> character and everyone else is too cool for that. But he slowly r- rubs off on them and everything. But then as the story goes on, it starts to get more complex and there's some nice drama and seriousness to it. And you start to kind of get, oh, okay, that's what's going on here. And uh, it's really interesting to see how they balance the comedy with the drama. It's almost like, bitter and sweet at the same time like a paradox i don't know if there's a word for that but uh-huh. weird <laughs> and then the uh, the two female leads are hannah waddingham who you may remember is saying the word shame a lot on game of thrones and oh. <laughs> yeah and juno temple and they're both great and they're both great together they have a bunch of scenes together and they they really made the show for me like i think that the lead character is a great character but it's also one of those shows where the whole cast is what works together to make the show what it what it is. So I really recommend it. And it's already been picked up for two more seasons. So I'm excited for that. Nice. Awesome. Nice. Alex, what have you been watching? So I was a big fan of Euphoria, the first season that was on HBO, I guess was it last year? I don't know when it time has stopped. It was the year so before. It was the year before. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Last year is a black hole. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of last year, uh they were supposed to film a season two and then pandemic happened. Uh so they decided to do a couple of like standalone covid safe episodes which basically Mm -hmm. meant just like two people in a room so and they were released around christmas time they were like kind of a holiday special you know euphoria it's incredibly dark show so it's i was gonna say christmas it's it's like you know it's like releasing girl with dragon tattoo on christmas Mm -hmm. yeah but man like 
I was blown away by especially part one of the special. It's basically just Zendaya's character, Rue, talking to her AA sponsor, played by Coleman Domingo, sitting in a booth in a diner for an hour talking. Mm. And it's just it's like an amazing one act play shot beautifully and acted perfectly and takes you on this amazing emotional journey for an hour. And just there's a great reminder of like how much can be done with two great characters sitting in a booth in a diner. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. you have seen season one, which is kind of a prerequisite for understanding the context of the scene, I highly recommend the Euphoria specials. They're they're really amazing. Just like there's like two one act plays centered around two different characters. Nice. Nice. Awesome. Cool. Trisha, what have you been watching? It's like wrapping up tonight, actually, is the award ceremony for Sundance this year. Mm. And I promise I'm not going to be obnoxious and recommend a bunch of movies that aren't out yet that you guys can't see. But I've seen at this counting 13 movies, 14 movies over the last four days a lot. at Sundance. It's been a whirlwind. And so many of them have been good. And and I can't wait as they get release dates. I'll like, uh, get to talk about them, I hope. Uh, a little in a little bit more depth as we start to get closer to when you guys can actually watch them. <laughs> more recently, I watched uh, right before Sundance started, I watched a movie called Baby Done. And it is a 2020 film out of New Zealand. I, I'm going to say it's a rom-com, but it's about a, a couple that's already together. And she finds out she's pregnant and she's like in total denial about it. And he couldn't be possibly more excited about it. They both are arborists people who take care of trees (laughs) and she's also a professional tree climber and wants to continue climbing trees but she's pregnant now anyway the main characters are played by rose matafeo who is a kiwi actress that's really really wonderful in this also and then the the guy is played by matthew lewis who you all know as neville longbottom Mm -hmm. from the harry potter series the best glow up Ever. <laughs> <laughs> from that series um you can rent it on youtube it's i just really enjoyed it it's just a really cute version of like um yeah like a little indie comedy um out of new zealand uh directed by written and directed by curtis vowel is how i'm gonna say his last name vowel maybe strongly recommend just a nice a nice little watch baby done oh, awesome very cool what have you been watching, Michael? Uh, well, so I was actually recently on a podcast uh, where I had a very interesting and cathartic conversation. So this podcast is The uh, Art of Coaching, and it's this podcast from a guy named Brett Bartholomew, and he teaches coaching, and he's also a big fan of Lessons from the Screenplay and the podcast. And so he invited me on to talk about the similarities in storytelling and coaching. Interesting. Yeah. And it was a really cool conversation. And he was very prepared for the interview, which was intimidating. But also he really appreciated, yeah, just the the similarities and how how storytelling lets you communicate and connect with people and how important that is not just in storytelling, but in everyday life and also when trying to coach people and inspire people. Hmm. And so it was a conversation of us kind of finding this really interesting common ground and acknowledging the importance of vulnerability when making human connections and kind of all these things that you wouldn't expect a coach person (laughs) to Mm. like care about or value. And, And I think that's what was so refreshing and really cool about talking to him so so it's the art of coaching podcast episode 52 it's rare to talk to people in general and come away feeling this sort of 
like you've had a deep connection and discovered something and mm. to have it be from this very unexpected place on top of that was just even even more fun so nice yes. yeah. Great. Well, this has been our conversation on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons for making this show possible and voting every month for all the movies. We know we make it hard for you, but you guys, mm-hmm. you always, you always come through. Uh, so we're excited to talk about District 9 coming up soon. Beyond Screenplay is produced by Vince Major, our editors, Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. As always, our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet. Say hi. Tell us how much you love this movie. Or if you hate this movie somehow, tell us so that we can find you and hunt you down. (laughs) (laughs) No one hates this movie. That's the most, like violent i've ever heard michael speak <laughs> only, no. only robots or something <laughs> i don't threaten people i smile you can't threaten people while smiling okay That's a paradox <laughs> it is a paradox <laughs> thanks everyone for listening and we will see you in the next episode bye 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 everybody bye <laughs> <laughs>